The curtains were half drawn. The floor was swept and strewn with rushes. Rosemary and May lay thick upon the bed on which I lay, where through the lattice ivy shadows crept. He leaned above me, thinking that I slept and could not hear him. But I heard him say, Poor child, poor child. And as he turned away came a deep silence, and I knew he wept. He did not touch the shroud or raise the fold that hid my face, or take my hand in his, or ruffle the smooth pillows for my head. He did not love me living, but once dead he pitied me, and very sweet it is to know he still is warm though I am cold. Welcome to Femme Macabre, a podcast about life's mysteries, oddities, and of course, the, the macabre. macabre, hosted by Stephanie Malosh and Aaron Vance. talk about death baby <laughs> you you ready for today's episode Erin? i'm very ready <laughs> today we are doing a crash course of sorts on victorian death and dying we're going to discuss death and grief in the 19th century and briefly touch on how living and working conditions during this time contributed to many horrible and gruesome deaths now i do think that the victorians got a lot of things about death right the melodrama, the all-black everything, the languishing, the poetry. It's all very aesthetic, isn't it, Steph? Oh, yes. It speaks to my inner emo kid, that's for sure. But it isn't even just that. The Victorians were very interested in the concept of the good death. This meant that if one knew they were close to dying, they surrounded themselves with family and friends, said their goodbyes and words of wisdom and their comfort was paramount during this time. Of course, many deaths are unexpected due to accidents, fast-acting illnesses, and murder. So this ideal is unfortunately rare. But the principle of the good death is the solid one. Spending your last days in comfort with loved ones sounds pretty great. Today, the death industry has been so sanitized that many of us have never seen a dead body, never mind washed a loved one's corpse or comforted someone as they neared their last breath. All of the Victorian fanfare surrounding death, though we will see as we go on that it had some downfalls and could even be dangerous, it made death a part of life, which I think is really important. Death was not tucked away, hidden behind euphemisms and bad covers of Green Day's Time of Your Life. <laughs> death was real, and many people today argue that incorporating the reality of death into everyday life makes it much easier to cope with when you're faced with it. Normalizing death and death positivity is the goal of the American organization, The Order of the Good Death, and we encourage you to check them out, as well as co-founder Caitlin Doty's amazing YouTube channel, Ask Mortician. Love her. Which we both watch obsessively and which helped us a lot in our research for the episode, particularly her recreation of a Victorian funeral and... They actually did a real photo shoot with Victorian tintypes recreating post-mortem photographs. 
Absolutely. And while normalizing death and demystifying it are obviously beneficial, why were the Victorians so into death? We don't really have to look very far to see that the Victorians had a penchant for the macabre, just like us. Our namesake. Some of history's <laughs> greatest spooky stories and spooky bitches come from this time. Shout out to Mary Shelley, OG femme macabre. Hell yeah. We can, however, <laughs> thank Her Majesty Queen Victoria for the over-the-top mourning aesthetics that we now associate with the Victorian era. That's right. Queen Victoria's prolonged period of mourning following the death of her beloved husband Albert is considered to be a major reason that Victorians shifted their views around death in the 19th century. While death wasn't necessarily taboo or hidden away before, it is widely thought that it wasn't until the public observed Queen Victoria's elaborate mourning that they began to revel in the process of mourning itself. At first, people were quite displeased with the queen's over-the-top displays of grief. She didn't appear at public events until long after Albert's death, and even then, her first public appearance was at an unveiling of a monument dedicated to him. But the public soon began to model their own grief after her. Unlike today, when our grief is often restricted to an in-memory-of Facebook page, in Queen Victoria's time, you had to display your grief, literally wear it on your sleeve. Those draping sleeves we usually associate with Stevie Nicks were part of a Victorian mourning dress and at the time were removable and meant to act as built-in handkerchiefs. In the Victorian era, mourning happened in stages and the clothing of the mourner corresponded to both these stages as well as the proximity of the deceased to the mourner. If your husband died, your mourning would be longer than if your aunt had died and your dress would be more elaborate as well. To continue with the dead husband thread, if a woman's husband died, she would begin deep mourning, which lasted a year and a day. She could only wear dull black clothing and could not leave the house or wear jewelry. In this first period of mourning, a widow wore a black crepe veil called a weeping veil over her face, all the time. The purpose of the veil was said to blind the mourner from glimpsing others who are not mourning and to allow the widow to weep privately over the death of her husband, but due to the highly toxic nature of the dyes and chemicals used to make the veil, it is just as likely that she was weeping over swollen and irritated eyes, skin abrasions and infections, or simply not being able to breathe due to all of the chemicals. Practically everything in the 19th century was coated in arsenic, from wallpaper to face creams to things like diapers. And there are accounts of widows actually contracting arsenic poisoning from their morning attire. And I mean, if that's not irony, I don't know what is. In other words, if your heartbreak over your husband's death didn't kill you, then your clothes would. Accurate. <laughs> Weeping veils caused blindness, all of the above conditions that Steph mentioned, respiratory illnesses, and even death. Not to mention that the stiff, crinkled fabric was uncomfortable and heavy. Crepe began as silk, soft, shiny, and beautiful. But of course, morning clothes were not allowed to reflect light. They weren't allowed to be cheerful. So it had to be dyed, stiffened, and matted with a variety of chemicals. Crepe was the most common fabric for trimming morning dresses, which were long and matte black. They were often called widow's weeds. Crepe was dreadfully expensive and could be damaged by water easily. The dyes used ran any time it got wet or the wearer sweat. There were many recipes for bombs to remove the dye from your skin, as regular soap and water would not get the black stains out completely. And in yet another ironic twist of events, many of these recipes called for 
you guessed it. Lie. Poisonous substances. Lie, <laughs> arsenic, all sorts of different acids. All the fun stuff. <laughs> fun fact, my mom has started making soap and she has like straight up burned her fingerprints off with lies. <sighs> the second phase of mourning, called full mourning, lasted nine months and the veil was allowed to be pulled back off of the face. Remember, until this point, a whole year and a day, the widow could barely see or breathe underneath the weight and color of her black matte veil. She was also allowed at this point to wear small bits of jewelry, which were most acceptable if they commemorated the deceased person or were made of jet. The last phase of mourning, called half mourning, lasted only three months. Women during this time were allowed to wear dark purple and dark gray. Throughout all of these periods of mourning, men wore black suits and gloves with black bands and cravats. Meanwhile, traditional children's mourning attire was white, which gave Victorian funerals a distinct midsummer vibe, if you catch my drift. <laughs> Jewelry was now encouraged as long as it was made from black pearls or jet, as Aaron mentioned previously. Jewelry made from the hair of the deceased or that held a photo of the deceased was also encouraged, but we'll speak more on that in just a moment. Women had to suffer through this intensive mourning practice for fear of being ostracized. There were some exceptions, so a widow with no income and children to clothe and feed was allowed to marry, but the day after her wedding, she had to resume her mourning schedule and complete it. The expectations of an ex extended mourning period with prescribed dress was not just restricted to the upper classes, either. Though it was expensive, the social repercussions of not properly mourning could be dire. Anyone who did not properly mourn was considered to be immoral or disrespectful to the dead. During mourning, it was women, not men, who were confined to their homes and forbidden to attend church or go on social outings. Widows were considered quite appealing, actually, at the time. Something about a single woman with sexual knowledge and a mysterious veil... Not that that makes up for the strict gender roles ascribed in mourning, though. There was hope, however. By the 1890s, mourning periods were significantly shorter and veils were lace and often kept off the face for the entire mourning period. After Queen Victoria's death in 1901, these elaborate practices began to rapidly decline until the process was nearly gone by World War I. While elaborate outfits that just might kill you seem a little over the top, it is important to remember that the Victorians would have been equally shocked to witness how we grieve today. No one would have suggested that you move on or quiet your grief or stop taking so many sick days. No one would try to dry your tears. In fact, wearing a vial of tears as jewelry was common for those in mourning. Oh, that is the most emo of emo. I want a vial of tears. Although the Victorian period brought a lot of reform in regards to public health and sanitation, workplace safety, food regulations, and so much more, many of these policies came into effect a little too late or were not properly standardized right away. We'll discuss this a bit more next week when Erin and I will talk about how many modern-day workers' rights emerged after many young women died of radium poisoning after working in unsafe factory conditions. So instead, to kind of round off our very death-heavy episode, we are going to talk about some of the weirdest ways that people died during the Victorian era. Luckily, Steph found a treasure trove of newspaper clippings collected on the baby died blog 
by Ross Horsley, who appears to be a historian in Leeds, England. These, what we are going to read next, are all authentic newspaper clippings from the Victorian era or in a case of a couple, one or two years after. Mm -hmm. So the first one we have for you is titled Choked by His False Teeth, which appeared in the Yorkshire Evening Post on June 8th, 1904. It reads, At an inquest yesterday on the body of Mr. Edward Clayton, who was suffocated at Endon between Leek and Stoke, through swallowing his false teeth, a doctor said he found the top plate of Clayton's false teeth wedged behind the clack of his throat, which would cause him to attempt to vomit, but he would not be able to do so. The fluid would enter the lungs and he would be suffocated. A verdict of accidental death was returned. I'm pretty sure the clack of your throat is the uvula. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Aaron and I were talking about this before <laughs> the episode, and I tried to Google it, and all I could find was, like, the 16th century definition of clack is from French, and it just means to clap or to slap someone across the face. But anyway, I would hate to choke on my own teeth. My dog's baby teeth are all falling out, and I have, like, this irrational fear that she's going to choke on them even though that's, like, impossible because they're so It's tiny. one tooth. At least she's not wearing a full set of fake teeth, you know? Yeah. Dentures are <laughs> hazardous. Don't choke on your dentures, folks. <laughs> okay, this one is entitled Killed by a Pig from the Yorkshire Post on December 2nd, 1873. I don't even know what to say about this one. Okay, it reads... At Galway on Sunday night, a child named Mullins was, during the absence of its parents, why is the why is the kid in it attacked by a pig? I, th I think they say Mullins, like, like that's the family's last name. I'm gonna so they probably okay. don't know what sex You're the, right. We talked about this at is. another point, didn't we? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm going to restart that. <laughs> at Galway on Sunday night, a child named Mullins was, during the absence of its parents, attacked by a pig. Its throat and chest were so lacerated that it died in a short time. The pig dragged the child out of the house by the throat into the street. This is the second fatal accident of its kind at Galway within a month. Two in a Galway. month? Galway, <laughs> what was happening in 1873? Two children died from being mauled by a pig. On? In the same month. What are the odds? What are these farmers feeding their pigs? I mean, I know pigs aren't like... They're not Charlotte's Web type pigs that we like to think of. They're not babe in the city. But I mean, in my experience, I've never seen a pig do anything remotely like... Me neither. Eviscerate a like, child? Like, the scariest thing I've ever experienced with a pig is that one tried to snatch an apple right out of my hand and I thought it was going to eat my hand, but... Is a pig's mouth even that big? Pigs are gnarly. Pigs are gnarly, yeah. I will admit. They can be freaky. They're gigantic. They can be vicious. But this story, this is just another level. And, like, okay, a child could be 14 or a child could be, like, a month old. We need more clarity here. This is not the Galway of Ed Sheeran's hit song, Galway Girl. <laughs> so this next clipping that we found is a bit of a juicy yes. as well. Uh, just because it's so, like, I could picture someone today doing this, you know, like, picture, like, the fratty douche boy 
who's just like drunk and trying to like show off. This is exactly the kind of person that I'm picturing in my head, but in Victorian attire. To be honest, I'm surprised that this wasn't like a headline in our local paper at like first day out of quarantine at the Black Diamond Hotel. Choked by a billiard bar. In fact, this instead appeared in the Yorkshire Evening Post on November 3rd, 1893. It reads, A singular fatality occurred on Wednesday night at a public house in Soho, London. Some men were in the billiard room when one of them attempted to get a billiard ball into his mouth. This feat he had previously accomplished and had successfully removed the ball. (laughs) This time, however, he failed to extract it and it became fixed in his throat. A cab was immediately fetched, but while being removed to the hospital, the unfortunate fellow expired. I think this is just like... uh, darwinism in effect right here yeah this is like darwin awards 1893 yeah exactly (laughs) but like what are the mechanics of this a billiards ball is pretty big is it not like i don't think i can even put it in my mouth never mind get it down my throat okay but erin that's what think about how (laughs) think about how many people you've heard growing up say that they can fit their entire fist in their mouth (laughs) this is that kind of person that's fair (laughs) This is that kid. (laughs) (laughs) This last one is called Sudden Death from Tight Lacing, and it was in the Dundee Courier, October 22nd, 1844. It reads, On Sunday morning, as the service at Wimslow Church was about to commence, a young woman from Macclesfield named Jane Goodwin, 22 years of age, who had just taken her seat near the pulpit, was suddenly taken ill and was carried out of the church to the sexton's house, but before her friends got there, she was a corpse. Her death was caused by being too tightly laced. That was the biggest run-on sentence I've ever seen in my life. All of these were run-on sentences. <laughs> but they were quite entertaining to hear and to uh, to read through with you, Erin. I'm going to have nightmares about pigs for the rest of my life, Steph. I don't blame you. Pigs are scary. Pigs and billiard balls. <laughs> anyway, if you enjoyed hearing some of these weird ways that Victorians died, uh, we highly recommend you check out the Baby Died blog. Um, it's full of other weird and wacky newspaper clippings like this. I think the URL is just thebabydied.blogspot.com. Yeah, super easy. Yeah. Spelt the way you think it's spelt. Your search history will, however, look a little sketchy. earlier, morning attire played a big part in public mourning. It was a visual cue for people in the community to know, without asking, that you had experienced the loss of a loved one. The Victorians had a very intricate mourning culture, and with it came the memorialization of the deceased. While memento mori, or death memorabilia, had been around for a very long time, the 19th century saw the resurgence of these macabre but lovingly crafted trinkets. From jewelry and accessories to intricately detailed quilts and beautiful pieces of art, the Victorians could turn almost anything they touched into memorabilia for the deceased. As times have changed, some of these memento mori pieces might be considered slightly grotesque or macabre by people today, but these items were vital in helping families grieve for their loved ones. And I mean, when you consider that these days you can have a loved one's ashes mixed into tattoo ink, and then put that tattoo ink permanently into your skin, this stuff doesn't actually seem that strange at all. 
Some of the ways that Victorians mourned their dead were by handcrafting, jewelry, paintings, different kinds of artwork, um, even like house decor with the hair of the deceased. So there's actually some incredibly gorgeous dead person hair art out there, and you can buy it on eBay. Believe me, I've considered blowing a paycheck on one of these things. Oh, they are so beautiful. They're a little... I mean, it's hair. But, like, the Victorians believed that hair was, like, everlasting because it doesn't die when it's when the person dies. And <laughs> so it's an everlasting uh, memento that you can keep. And hair is actually also a symbol of regeneration because for centuries, it was believed that your hair and your nails kept growing after death. For sure. It wasn't until, like, relatively recently that we realized that it's actually quite simply your tissues receding and shrinking through the process of decomposition. So the idea that hair not only dies, but continues growing for a short period after someone dies, makes this onslaught of hair artwork and jewelry made with human hair a really powerful and meaningful symbol to carry as a memento of a loved one. In addition to memento mores using hair, there was also a lot of jewelry made with portraits or photographs of the deceased. And of course, if you've ever spent any time on the internet, not just looking at videos of cats or porn, then you have probably come across Victorian post-mortem photography, which is exactly what it sounds like. The act of taking photographs of dead people. So those, those are the, I would say those are the two most common memento mm -hmm. mori from the Victorian period, or at least the most well-known. There's also things like Death dolls. Death dolls. They're interesting. Death dolls are the ones that are just made to be in the image of the deceased child, right? Which, honestly, I think that those, like, lifelike uh, newborn babies that people make to look like they're newborn babies, much, much creepier than death dolls, honestly, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, yes. Have you seen... If you're interested in death dolls at all, you gotta watch Servant on Apple TV, because holy shit. Oh, that's the one with Rupert Grint, right? I don't mm -hmm. have Apple TV, death but I dolls. want to see that show so badly. Death dolls, hair art, postmortem photographs, none of them have anything on the creepiness of that show. <laughs> We often see rhetoric about how, you know, back in the day, if a child died, the parents weren't too upset because it happened all the time and they had 10 other kids anyway. This way of thinking, besides just being kind of gross, is not useful or accurate. The Victorians weren't just putting their grief on show for Instagram likes. Grief was woven into the very fabric of society, along with ancestor veneration and a desire to commemorate and respect loved ones. The Victorians felt deeply and were unashamed to show it, even though there was a lot of gender and class divide thrown in. The internet nowadays is fascinated with the Victorian postmortem photography as a creepy, absurd thing. However, at its very core, it is little different than having a photo album of happy memories of your late grandfather. 
deathbed or post-mortem photography was very often the only time a person was photographed, and this photo would become a treasured family heirloom and reminder of the person whose image it contained. What seems spooky at first is at its core deeply, deeply human and honestly kind of relatable. Uh, the Victorians saw a shift in their understanding of death and the afterlife following years of religious reform and the introduction of new intellectual and literary movements such as Unitarianism and Romanticism. The Victorians' understanding of what happened to a person's soul after death changed drastically, and they began to appropriate different aspects of these new movements into a new ideology or understanding of the celestial afterlife. So instead of focusing on the fear and decay of death, they began to celebrate the beauty of death and the potential to reconnect with your loved ones in the afterlife, um, which is why all of these pieces of memorabilia became so important to people because it helped them remember their loved ones as they were in their youth glowing with life. I think we're experiencing something similar nowadays with the positive death movement, and it's currently gaining traction around the world, and especially in the U.S., with the good death. And so what they aim to do is celebrate death and break down the barriers that make it so taboo to so many people. Since the Victorian era, we've seen a huge distancing between family and the funeral service industry. And so it's become the responsibility of the funeral directors and the funeral homes to take care of all the preparations. Um, so it's not common anymore to see wakes or funerals happening in family homes anymore as they used to. But this new positive death movement aims to make the funeral process much more transparent to families even inviting families to take part in that process. And so depending on your comfort level, some funeral homes are now inviting families to follow along the whole journey from body preparation to cremation. They are also helping provide great eco-friendly alternatives to cremation, as well as helping to debunk many of the myths and misinformation that have come up uh, throughout the last century or so about what happens to a body after death, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, this is something that I think I can speak for both of us when I say that we're really interested in it and really passionate about it. Um, I consider myself to be a very death positive person. And of course, like having grown mm -hmm. up in a society very distanced from death, I certainly still have my hang ups when it comes to death. But mm -hmm. with the help of the death positivity movement and the order of the good death, I am working through those things and... It's funny because we're a little spooky. We're a little creepy, right? But yeah. I honestly see it as a way of inviting that conversation about death into our everyday lives so that when we are... And making it less spooky. Yeah, so that when we are confronted with the death of a loved one, it is less mysterious at the very least and maybe easier to process. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the resources and services that can help you process that grief is going to become much less taboo. And hopefully with that being more talked about, it'll help people in their processing of grief because as you mentioned earlier, it is so difficult to get time off unless you have like a death certificate or proof in the newspaper of an obituary that your family member has passed away. I personally right? think and it is highly unethical to make your students prove that their grandma died so that they can get an extension on homework. And that's a thing we deal with yeah. every day. Anyway. Anyway. I know, I know, but like exactly what you were saying, I know that we see it in a much more positive way, whereas people in my family, for example, 
um, like after doing a bunch of research, like after I first stumbled upon Caitlin Doty's uh, YouTube channel and I started, you know, watching all of her videos and learning so much more about the movement, I became much more aware of like my ecological footprint of what that would mean after my death and all these things and how much of an impact cremation makes or how much, you know, all of these different things. Never, never biodegrade. Exactly. And so I think I mentioned it to my mom like once or twice. And she definitely gave me that weird look of like, why are you telling me about this? Like, I don't want to think about you dying. But I'm like, I think it's just important to know, even though I'm 27 and probably won't be dying for a little while, at least, you know, that I'm thinking about these things. And I would like to have, you know, either a water cremation or just bury me in a shroud and like, let me decompose naturally. Like, that's something that I think I would like. I would love to be on a body farm. And it, it brings me comfort, too. It brings me a little bit of comfort to knowing what I want to do. Yeah. With, like, what I want my family to do with my body after I die. It gives me, like, a little bit of, a like, a sense of relief of knowing that there are these options. Yeah. That allow me to continue being more proactive and keeping our Earth beautiful and healthy with my dead ass. <laughs> with all the unknowns that with all the unknowns that surround death, it's nice to be able to feel like you have some sort of sense of control For sure. over an aspect mm-hmm. of it. I would like to be put into a body farm so I don't get Ooh. lonely as a corpse. Yeah, my ideal um also science. <laughs> in uh the Netherlands in yeah, in the Netherlands there is a national park near Appeldoorn and I went there 2011 when I graduated high school I went on a trip with my friends and I uh we did a road trip around Europe and we ended up there and we were camping in the national park and we decided to go for a little walk in the woods and we came across this place where it sort of turned into this like mystical like fairy garden we saw like flowers everywhere and all these beautiful stones and rocks and as we were walking through we noticed that there was there were names and dates on some of these rocks and they were full on boulders or just like little hand painted rocks with like little names and things like that written on them. And then we passed through the rest of this little area and we saw a church and we realized that this, there was this beautiful cemetery in the middle of the forest. And it was just like this very natural environment. Like the flowers were growing all over the place And it wasn't like big tombstones or anything overtly religious or anything like that, even though there was a church nearby. And I just thought it it looked so peaceful. And I remember coming back from my trip and telling my parents, if I die, that's where I want to be buried. (laughs) That sounds beautiful. Thank you for listening to Femacab. If you enjoyed this week's episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it, tweet it, snap it, or leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Every share and review helps us immensely by introducing our weird little podcast to new listeners. If you'd like to stay up to date with all things Femacab, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Femacab. But most importantly, make sure to tune in for our next episode all about the Radium Girls. Bye! Bye. The poem read at the beginning of today's episode was After Death by Christina Rossetti, published in 1862. Detailed citations for our research can be found in the episode description.